Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I spoke with Senator Linda Frum about a tweet that she posted, and it had to do with her son being at the Calgary Stampede and questions he was being asked. We also were in touch with Adrian Sutherland, the leader of Midnight Shine, the band from Attawapiskat. They're doing tremendously well, the band is, but in Attawapiskat, they have a really serious issue with their water. Meanwhile, our federal minister of the environment is bragging on Twitter about the clarity and the taste of the water in Ottawa. What a surprise. Brian Peckford joined us, the former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, on the Liberals versus the Conservatives, and on someone in the federal election campaign being underwhelming so far. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta and Security Advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, spoke to us about the uh, Liberal Party, the Liberal government, hiding from charging Canadians who joined ISIS. And I spoke with novelist, international novelist, Richard Zimler, about an anti-Semitic situation attack that he faced. You'll want to hear that. Do we still have a country? Asked Premier Mo. And that was after the uh, TMX, uh, shall we call it derailing by the British Columbia government? And then um, Premier Higgs, after attending his first Premier's meeting, wondered about the strength of the fabric of our federation and said on, and this was just before Christmas of last year when he said that, we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. And since that time, we've spoken with Premiers Ford and Kenny, and national unity came up in those discussions as well. So I was on, uh, I spent a, yeah, I spent a fair bit of time on Twitter. I, I read a lot of different tweets and I pay attention to what people are thinking. Uh, you know, certain people, other people, uh, you know, <laughs> their humor value or shock value may be the same. But I, I one of the people I, whose tweets I follow is uh, Senator Linda Frum. And I find what the senator, I'm not saying this just because she's on the air with me. You know that from me. I, I, don't, uh, I don't snuggle up to anybody. Um, but, Senator, I have to say that I, I like what you tweet. I like the way you tweet it. You don't spend a whole lot of time, extra time. It's not like you're trying to get all 240 characters into your tweet like I do. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Well, that's, that's so kind. I like your tweets, too. Well, and thank you. so nice to say that. <laughs> oh, here we go. Mutual admiration society. Uh, let, me, uh, let me read your tweet that, from yesterday to our, our listeners who haven't maybe seen it. I, I've tweeted it out a few times, but if you haven't seen it, what the senator tweeted yesterday was, My son, a Toronto resident, is in Calgary for Stampede. He says he keeps meeting people who ask him, quote, Do people in the East actively hate us? End quote. What a sad statement of affairs for this country. And then you get a little partisan. We need a national leader who can create, can unite us again, but only a little because that's really important because the current leader, I mean, a few days into his mandate, he said he wanted to create a post-nation state out of Canada. That's certainly not a unity message. But tell us about what your, how's your son feel about hearing this question repeatedly? 
Well, I think that he was quite startled because he, unlike me, he doesn't spend his every day uh, in the political realm. He has a job and has a job in business. And he was out in Calgary to do some business, but he timed it so that he could attend the Stampede, uh, which I just spoke to him. He had much too good a time. But uh, he... um, he was taken aback as just, you know, a regular guy in Calgary, uh, meeting people either professionally or socially, that it kept coming up again and again and again once people heard that he was from, uh, from Ontario. Uh, the, the, the hurt and the anger that people are feeling and how close to the surface it is, it just bubbles out. And people, you know, needed to express this to him as someone from Toronto. They, you know, just just how um, difficult these last few years have been for them. And they are curious to know if people in Ontario understand what they're going through. And you know, it's a legit. It's a very legitimate question to be asking. It truly is. Maybe the, maybe the hatred. Maybe the hatred part of it is, you know. Over the top. I'll hear from Alberta now, but because, but but it's a legitimate question to ask. Like, how do you people feel about us? Because look at what's been happening to our province. Look at what this prime minister has done to us. Uh, look at what this government's done to us. So, uh, how do you Ontarians feel about it? It's a legitimate question. Yeah, and listen, I'm just quoting uh, my son, who's quoting the people that he spoke to. You know, at, at parties at the Stampede, etc. Right, right. And he used. He said they say you guys must hate us because why otherwise are you are you doing this to us uh you know that that you make political decisions in central canada and you think they're interesting to debate and talk about but we feel the effects of them and the effects of them are devastating for us and you know what i hear from albertans uh, on a regular basis and i've heard this and we've talked about it on the air actually a fair bit uh i hear why, where's the public support? Roy, you keep telling us that uh, the average Ontarian feels positively about Alberta, but where's the public support? Then we turn to the Montreal Economic Institute's uh, leisure poll, which showed that 66% of Quebecers, this is not the government, not the, quote, elites, end quote, uh, but 66% of Quebecers prefer the idea of Alberta oil um, going through their province by pipeline to New Brunswick. They prefer pipelines over trains and over ra- over, uh, over over road. Um, have we lost? Have we lost the ability to commute, communicate with one another on a fundamental level as Canadians, or do do we just not care enough anymore? Well, to me, this is all a failure of leadership, and mm-hmm. that's uh, where the problem begins, and and that's how we can also solve the problem. We do not have leadership at the federal level uh, in the prime minister's office right now. I think that really understands uh, that the role of the prime minister is to keep our country strong and united. I mean, I I, I heard uh, the prime minister saying just a few weeks ago that he understands that that is the primary function of the prime minister. That is his number one job. But if you look at the state of affairs, there's no way that anyone can say he's doing his job properly. And so we need somebody in the office of prime minister who uh, understands this country from coast to coast, cares about this country from coast to coast, and will stop pitting one region against another. So how would, uh, assuming, let's assume that uh, Mr. Scheer wins on October the 21st, just for our conversation's sake, assume that he becomes prime minister of Canada, what 
does he do to create the sense in the whole country that, yeah, we are actually all on the same team and this divisive uh, reality that's existed since October of 2015, and particularly, I know I'm pointing at Trudeau, but he's the one who said he wanted a post-nation Canada. Um, how, how, do you, how does he create this sense of unity, sense of unified purpose? Because it's been, it's been rattled pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at what happened uh, with the, the Bill C-69, you know, the environmental review right. uh, bill that was passed, you, there were seven premiers who expressed uh, their opposition to that bill. And uh, when you have seven premiers telling you they don't want something and the federal government just rams it through anyway, that <laughs> that's obviously going to create negative fallout. And so in terms of what a prime minister Scheer would do, number one, I have faith and belief he would listen to his provincial counterparts. You would have much more respect for their point of view. When, you know, I've been in the Senate now for 10 years, and I was trying to remember, and I cannot remember, any other time except for this past May when a sitting premier came before a committee to say to the Senate, uh, I am asking you, this was on Bill C-48, the anti-tanker bill, I'm asking you not to do this because this will be devastating to, to my province and to the people of my province. And you know, there's never been legislation in the whole time that I've been in the Senate before where it was necessary for a premier and one of his top ministers, the environment minister, the energy minister, to come and sit next to him and plead with senators to try and kill a bill because the bill would be so um, devastating to his to his provincial economy. Now, the bill, as we know, passed anyway. So, again, you know, I have faith that Prime Minister Scheer would pay more heed and more respect to a premier when he shows up at his door to say, you know, if you do this, you you will be um, deeply uh, offending the sensibilities of my province. Senator Trump's going to take some calls. Um, what are the what's the point that you want to make to Senator Trump? What's the question you have for her about creating some real sense of unity in, in Canada? You think Andrew Shear is capable of doing that? Um, because if all the premiers go to Prime Minister Shear's door, he's going to have to deal with them. So if Premier Horgan from British Columbia goes to Prime Minister Shear and says, "Hey, you know, um, there's pipeline issue with 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 me," he's he's going to have to deal with with Horgan, and he'll deal with Kenny. And he'll deal with Mo and the rest of them. So uh, we have callers. Obviously, uh, you can imagine Senator from from Alberta. So why don't we start with Peter? Peter, go ahead, please. What do you want to say to the senator? What's the question? What's the point? Well, as Mr. Shear would uh, be the prime minister, I would like to see him get rid of Bill C-69 immediately. Uh, next, get rid of Bill uh, C-48. It's disingenuous to have uh, tanker toxic, uh, uh banned on the west coast not on the east coast maybe that would affect paul martin if they were uh banned over there i don't know um so are, are you are, uh, hold on a sec are you 
for Canadian unity? Are you a, are you a, uh, a coast-to-coast Canadian, or are you somebody who's on the border I, of checking out? I, I am, but I'm slowly getting kicked to the curb as far as I'm concerned, as an Albertan. Okay. Uh, Senator? You know, I've watched businesses disappear in the last uh, four to six years, yeah. all because the federal... Uh, uh, things that the federal government is okay. doing. Okay, Peter, hold on a second. Senator, go ahead with that. What would happen to 48 and 69? Oh, what, what, what did happen? I'm sorry. What, what would happen to those two pieces of legislation oh, if the I Conservatives see. were to win? Yes, for sure 48 uh, would, would <laughs> get ripped up. Uh, 69, as I understand it, it would be a little more difficult to uh, dismantle. But, of course, uh, you know, I think... Uh, Prime Minister Scheer would do everything he can to put in a regulatory framework uh, for, for the environment that, that was reasonable and fair, but much more uh, in keeping with uh, the requests that were made by seven premiers in seven provinces. So we can uh, reform 69, and we can absolutely ignore 48. All well. right. All right. Peter, thank you for the call. Here's uh, Clark, also in Alberta. Clark, are you, uh, are you in for... Uh, re-establishing a real sense of you know Canadian belonging for Alberta. Uh, I think we have to renegotiate it. I'm at the point now is that why should we be involved in an election that elects the premier of Eastern Canada or the pre- uh, prime minister, sorry, of Eastern Canada or the prime minister of Quebec? Um, we've been kicked in the teeth since 1976. We were building things. This country was going places. All that was built from the 50s to 60s on is all slowly going downhill. Uh, All the pipelines need to be replaced. 69 would have just shot it all in the foot. Um, Okay, I think we've got the gist of your message. Hold on. Senator, what do you say to uh, to, to Clark, who has some very strong thoughts on this? Yeah, and I want to thank you because I think this is a really important and valuable conversation that needs to be had on a national basis. I don't think enough people in Ontario hear uh, the the pain and difficulty that people in Alberta are experiencing. I don't think people really uh, internalize that enough. And if they did, they would recognize that we need to have a change of leadership at the federal level to try and put this right. So that uh, I, I get the frustration. You know, people in Alberta feel that elections are controlled by central Canada. And, and that, unfortunately, is largely true. That, that it's what happens in Ontario and Quebec that determines the outcome of the election. And I have to say, just hearing just from two callers, you know, the, the frustration and anger, it, yeah. it, it energizes me to try and do more to, to help fix this. Clark, uh, one quick question for you. The election of Jason Kenney as premier of Alberta, did that tamp down any feelings that you had for Alberta going alone? Um, I'm kind of saying I'm in the middle of the road on it. Um, You're waiting for October 21st? Uh, I'm waiting for a new deal for Alberta. All right, sir. Appreciate the call. In Edmonton, Darren, Darren, let me get you your question and your point as quickly as possible, please. Okay, thanks for taking my call. Um, basically, you've touched on a lot of what I was going to say already, but but it's my belief. I, I'm a born and raised Albertan, and up until, you know, fairly recently, a, you know, distinctly proud Canadian. 
But um, I just feel I've lived through the National Energy Program from the East, and I've lived through now this uh, government. Um, it is extremely frustrating for us out here to know that by the time our polls close, the election is over, that nothing we do out here is going to make any difference at all. Central Canada runs the show, and it's my belief, and I've been saying it for quite some time now, that large geographical uh, nations cannot survive. It's pretty tough to govern a nation geographically this large because really, I mean, what do I, as a person in Edmonton, what do I have in common with someone in Nova Scotia? So, uh, Senator, please speak to what Darren said and again encapsulate as quickly as you can what you've heard. Well, again, I am heartbroken by the pain that I hear. I think the message that I have is is not so much for Albertans, but for my fellow Ontarians uh, who are hearing this, that uh, there's a problem in this country, there's a national unity problem in this country, and uh, in order to solve it, we've got to change the guy at the top, and we've got to fix this by uh, making Andrew Scheer a Prime Minister for all of Canada and not just for Central Canada. It is going to be one heck of a noisy and nasty election campaign that we know. It sure is. Thank you very much for joining us, Senator. I wouldn't have asked you if I didn't have a sense that you're a credible person. I appreciate what you do on Twitter, um, and thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. There's Linda from uh, Senator, Conservative Senator. My email's Roy at RoyGreenshow.com, as you know. I know I'm going to be getting lots of emails. And just ex- re-expressing what your, what, your, what your feelings are. We'll do more on this, of course. Midnight Shine. I've become a huge fan of the band. Great, great, great music. And... Um, and Adrian's been on this program on several occasions talking about music and talking about Attawapiskat and what's necessary there and what's happening in the community and the housing needs. And um, so earlier today, the federal environment minister, Catherine McKenna, whose voice you also heard a few seconds ago, tweeted out, there's a lot to love about Ottawa, including our tap water. Did you know it's rated among the best in the world? So uh, I found that quite interesting in light of the fact that there was another tweet from a resident of Attawapiskat who talked about the fact that there was an emergency water meeting that had taken place in the community. And uh, the water's so bad that uh, they've been advised not to wash their food. They've been advised to leave their windows cracked open a bit so that they don't get, uh, folks don't get overwhelmed by the chemicals uh, in, you know, in the water if they're running the water. Also, if you take a shower, don't take a hot shower because it opens the pores and it'll be exposed to the chemicals in the water. And and I advised the the, uh, Minister of the Environment to perhaps, you know, pay attention to what's happening in Attawapiskat. Well, joining us from Attawapiskat is Adrian Sutherland. It took me a long time to get that to that, didn't it? Adrian, good to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. It's uh, good to be back. When you see, and you've seen the tweet, and you reply to the minister, and I'm not going to read your tweet. I want you to reply on the air. When you see the tweet where she talks about how great the tap water is in, 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 in the city of Ottawa, what do you say to her? Well, uh, it kind of bothered me this morning. Uh, when I was having my breakfast when I read that tweet, knowing that we have contaminated water coming from our taps here in in, in Anawapiskat. It, 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 I was quite upset. Um, I'm not sure if that's something 
to be very proud of, especially knowing that in a lot of indigenous far north communities in this country um, still don't have clean drinking water. Uh, I don't know how many hundreds of boil water advisories that's, uh, that are still in place right across the north. So it just it, it, it bothers me knowing that um, why is this acceptable in indigenous communities in this country when it would not be tolerated in any other municipality in, in, in this country. So, and, and you and I have talked about this before, when water purification plants are put into First Nations communities, the government takes the lowest bid, and the lowest bid is quite often from somebody who gets started, uh, either doesn't finish the job, or when they finish the job, the plant is useless, and you're left with a situation that you had prior to that contract being being issued. So so in Attawapiska in today, what kind of water purification do you have? Well, we do have a water treatment facility, which is uh, approximately, I think, about a little, it's under 20 years old now. Um, it's definitely fairly new, uh, but from what I understand, the, the type of filtration uh, that they're using right there is not able to, because there's a byproduct coming from the filtration process and the chemicals that they're adding, and that's what's causing the contamination in, in the water. So you and your wife and your kids and uh, everyone in the community, yeah, you had the emergency meeting, and so it's, you, don't, you don't wash your, your food with using the water. You don't take a hot shower or you're advised not to because it opens the pores and the chemicals will get into your into your body. And you're supposed to leave your windows open a little bit if you run the water because you don't want the chemical to be building up in uh, in your immediate surroundings. I mean, that's just intolerable. That's just absolutely intolerable. Yeah, it's it's. I didn't know what to think yesterday and, and after I left the meeting, I just... Uh, honestly, I was just com- completely speechless. Uh, I didn't know what to do, and and uh, I I, th- I know I've been drinking river water for quite some time, and in the winter I melt snow and ice for for drinking water because I've known this. The water issues date back to 2001. Um, these are these are issues that have plagued Ottawa-Piscat, and um, I think. From what I understand in the information that was being provided yesterday, uh, there is there has been a study done several years ago uh, that identified a new water source for the community. However, the current water treatment plant that's in place now um, is not set up um, to treat the, the new water source. So a new water plant would be required in order for us to relocate the water intakes uh, so that that I'm told is is the problem the indigenous indigenous affairs or whatever they're calling themselves these days and the feds um, are basically saying there's no funding for a new water treatment facility since 2001 but they have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to ship overseas yeah, I mean, I, don't, I, I, just, I just don't understand any of it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, how many people, what's the approximate population of Atahuapiscat? We're about 2,700 here on reserve. And uh, everybody has to pay uh, attention to this water 
emergency advisory? Everyone, you know, even the people that are coming in from the outside of the community to work, like the teachers, uh, the hospital staff, the northern staff, um, everyone is affected by this, and I think everyone's quite concerned, actually. Yeah. And we know the issues with the, with the kids. We've talked about that before, the concerns. And and you, and I, I've mentioned this, uh, when Adrian was on the show with us last time, we were talking about the fact that the band is increasing in popularity and success. And But you're not leaving because, because it's home. That's correct, yeah. I mean, you... <laughs> It's like I just don't know what else to do. Like, uh, one, um, it definitely crosses my mind that maybe, you know, maybe it's time to just leave. Maybe it's time to get up and leave. I don't see any of these issues being resolved mm-hmm. anytime soon. Are you I mean, scared? Huh? Does, it, does it scare you, the water? Yeah, I mean, of course. I'm I'm really concerned because uh, the, this chemical is said to, to cause accumulated health effects uh, like such as cancer. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is quite serious. Well, you know, in a lot of cases, cancer is incurable. Is is it is it if you boil the water, does it take care of it or or not quite? No, no, it's 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 because it's uh, it's not a bacterial issue; it's a chemical issue. So you have to have water brought in. Well, I don't even know what's happening. There's going to be another meeting this week. Like we know what the problem we know what the problem is now, but what what are the solutions? You know, what are we doing here? What what's happening? Are we going to be flying in water? Um, I'm definitely not bathing my kids and my grandkids in that in that in that water, knowing that uh, it's contaminated. So we're going to be drawing on the river water for bathing, and dishes, and and so on, and cooking. And it's not just Attawapiskat. No, I mean these problems exist for for the last. <laughs> I don't know, twenty, thirty years, right across, right across uh, this country. Well, it's, it's good to it's, it's good to know that Ms. McKenna has access to nice, clean tap water, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I always, I always find it. Uh, I don't know when I go to Toronto or, or Ottawa or any city, and I'm able to drink from the faucet. It's it's a really, uh, I guess, uh, it's a real leisure to be able to do that. Yeah, that should just be fundamental to everybody in this country, particularly if we have enough money to send it overseas, take care of people in this country first. And First Nations have been sort of behind the curve for way, way too long. Good to talk to you, Adrian. Again, congratulations on the success with the band. I know your community means the world to you, and uh, hopefully that message is going to get out. And Mr. Trudeau, who promised three years ago that he would visit Attawapiskat, has been busy going other places like the Bahamas, of course. But uh, maybe he'll find time to, uh, to visit your community one day. I hope so. Thank you for talking to us, my friend. Thanks for having me. All the best. Okay, bye. Adrian Sutherland, uh, Midnight Shine is the name of the band. You can't can't drink the water, you can't bathe in it, and boiling it isn't going to make it safe. But tap water is great in Ottawa. There are times I just don't know what to say. It's not that hard to say we're not drinking out of plastic water bottles anymore, we're drinking out of cardboard. It leaks, but, you know, what are you going to do? So what we do is we put a little plastic water bottle under the cardboard and everything's fine again. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Got to help me out, Brian. 
I'm going to lose it. Well, I was just thinking, <laughs> from the research I've done, it takes more energy to produce the paper than it does to produce the plastic. <laughs> oh, my God. I shouldn't do this. I mean, the political correctness of this society is just driving all a lot of us, like you and me, crazy. <laughs> It's. Can you cue that up again, please, Donna? I want to hear it again. It's just. <laughs> it's. 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 Well, you know, it's important because this is. Here's the prime minister of the country trying to make a point about doing away with plastic water bottles, and here's how it turned out. We have uh, recently switched to drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic, uh, sorry, away from plastic towards uh, paper, um, like drink box water bottles sort of things. Not, Not exactly his dad. No. Not exactly his dad. All right. I, I just want, actually, what we were looking for, we were just set the scene. You know, we're going to play a clip by Justin Trudeau and a clip by Andrew Scheer, which sets up what we're going to talk about and heading toward the federal election and what's going on in the country. And, it, of course, it turns out to be that combination. And and the giggles start. So um, why don't we start with uh, something that, um, that you wrote. And uh, I'd like to go to peckford42.wordpress.com. By the way, thank you for all the time you give us. Really appreciate that. You're it's welcome. Always, it's always good talking to you. Now, well, no, let's let's start with the with the with the uh, with the polling. Let's start with the polling that you and you sent me a, an email on the polling that's come out and. Uh, the reality is that we have Mr. Trudeau once again uh, in some polls leading Mr. Scheer. We have the Conservatives behind the Liberals, or we have the Conservatives marginally ahead of the Liberals, and it shouldn't be that way. There is so much, so much water has poured through the holes in the dam since October 2015 that Andrew Scheer should be very comfortably ahead. Or the NDP, Mr. Singh, should have enough uh, of a connective tissue with the rest of the country to be as a politician to say, here I am, you know, like Jack Layton did. Here I am. I'm the alternative. Vote for me. Or Elizabeth May with the Green Party. And they're starting to make some small steps toward greater recognition and acceptance in, in Canadian society. So when you see the polling, what's going on? What, what really stands out to you, Mr. Premier? Well, what stands out to me is that it's quite obvious that on both leadership and on policy, both the Conservative Party of Canada and the NDP Party of Canada have bombed out. They have not provided to the Canadian public sufficient articulation, uh, sufficient leadership to give any comfort to Canadians that we can do better under an alternative party than the existing one, notwithstanding the fact that, as you say, the Liberals should be in third or fourth place right now if breaking law means anything, if obstructing justice means anything, if closing down the Alberta oil and gas industry effectively means anything. These three things alone should see them in third or fourth place. Meanwhile, they're in first place. And so on leadership, both Mr. Scheer and Mr. Singh have not uh, been forceful uh, in demonstrating leadership abilities. And number two, on policy, both those other parties have been confusing, and there isn't a clear picture of what they stand for. 
You know, I have a small list here, a short list that I put together, knowing you and I would be talking about this. Right. And uh, this is the kind of ammunition that Justin Trudeau has provided Mr. Shear, Mr. Singh, Ms. May. And this is just partial. SNC-Lavalin and how the Liberal Party got rid of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. Right. The groping accusation when he was 27 years of age, of course, she misunderstood or she experienced it differently than he did. His India sojourn, right. where he played Mr. Dress Up and was mostly ignored by Prime Minister Modi, who really didn't want him there. We spoke with an Indian journalist who said they don't really want him here. The Indian Prime Minister knows why the Prime Minister of Canada is here. He's here to play up to his potential voting base for October of 2019. Um, his protection of convicted terrorists while offhandedly kicking Canadian military veterans to the curb. And the virtual conviction of Admiral Mark Norman. That's just a few items that will come top of mind with most Canadians. Well, that should be the kind of reservoir of of ammunition, political ammunition, that both Sheer Singh, and, and, and Elizabeth May should be able to go to the vault with and just make it work for them. Well, this is where they've really fallen down, because you, know, well, you can also talk about Mr. Trudeau's admiration for the governance system of China. Right. And you can talk about his admiration for Castro. Right. There's two examples of, of where he's uh, elevating communism above democracy rather than say China why didn't they say Britain why didn't they say Germany why didn't they say France why didn't they say a whole bunch of places uh, other than or the United States or whatever uh, and then to you know admire Castro so there's all kinds of information there but what the for example the conservatives in the last week or two have put on that ad again that they had on in their failed election attempt last time around of these individuals sitting around a table talking about uh, Mr. Trudeau, rather than put on a picture of the Caribbean island that he attended, whereby he violated our law four times. So the fodder is there uh, to uh, project a, a government, and then, you know, putting numbers on the, on, the, on the television screen of him promising in three years to balance the budget, and it's been $75 billion in the red. Now, some people, three years. some people have said to me, look, they'll be holding on, the opposition parties are holding on, to information they have. They'll have campaigns set up. They have some mini campaigns set up. They're not going to use them now. They'll use them closer to October the 21st. My counterpoint to that is, if you've got it, use it. Reuse Listen, it. Use it. What are you waiting for? What exactly are you waiting for? This is July. It's August, September, October. You better begin doing it. Well, uh, and my other answer to that is knowing I was coming on your program, I look up the conservative uh, uh, website and I find that there are seven, as, we, as I know and a lot of Canadians know, there are seven federal seats in Newfoundland. The conservatives have only nominated two candidates yet. In they New Brunswick, there's ten seats. The conservatives only nominated six yet. In Quebec, there are 78 seats. The Conservatives have only nominated 67. In British Columbia, there are 42 seats. The Conservatives only nominated 29. <laughs> so if you can't even get your candidates lined up 90 days before an election, what chance do you have of winning? And you're challenging incumbents, with the exception of the few Liberals who've decided not to run again. Exactly. You should have all your candidates in place 
by July when you have an election. Do they want to win? In October. Do they want to win? Is it, look, you've gone through campaigns. You're, you're a seasoned politician. You've battled with Trudeau Sr. And, and other premiers. And Is there an attitude among some people who are leaders in politics, and I'm not particularly pointing at Andrew Scheer now. I'm speaking gen- sort of generically. Are there some people who just don't project the will to win. Like you can go to a, into a sports dressing room, sports team's dressing room. You will see some players who can't wait to get out uh, on the field, on the ice, wherever the competition is taking place, because they want to win. There are others who are sitting listening to music or just relaxing because they're there to play. I think you hit the nail right on the head, and I've used sports analogies very often. There isn't the fire in the belly, as I said in my blog this week. There isn't the fire in the belly. There isn't the passion to demonstrate how wrong and what a wrong direction our country is going in. When you played the clip of uh, Mr. Shear there earlier when we started this conversation, did I never got any goosebumps. Uh, thinking, wow, I can't wait till October to vote for this man. It was a very matter-of-fact response to an unbelievably grave situation where the government of Canada was obstructing justice. Yeah. So I think you're dead right. Um, There are people who have, uh, you know, a a passion to win, to compete, to to put out an alternative message, which they think is more... Uh, beneficial to Canada, but we don't see that from our leaderships today, not only in the Conservative Party, but in the NDP Party, and even all the parties. You don't see it in the Liberal Party because you don't see it in the Liberal Party because the Liberal leader, the Prime Minister, has talked about turning this into a post-nation state. Let me get at the word that you used in one of your blogs, Premier. The word was underwhelm. But before I do that, can I just share this with you about sports analogies and winners? I used to say um, a silver medal means one thing, and that is somebody beat you. So I had a conversation with Jocelyn Lovell, who some people, hopefully many will remember, was one of this country's great, great cyclists, uh, represented Canada at the international level and won gold medals and really was an incredibly competitive individual. And uh, Jocelyn had a terrible accident he was preparing, I think, for the Olympics and uh, rode his, was on the road with his bicycle with a dump truck and they collided and Jocelyn became quadriplegic. And I used to have long conversations with Jocelyn by phone. This goes back about 15 years. And I said to him one day, we were talking about competitive spirit and he told me that he would hear his competitors break down while they're on the track because he raced inside and outdoors. He could hear them break down, and that's when he put the hammer down to to win. And that's the winner. So I said to him, and you know, Jocelyn, a silver medal means somebody beat you. And, And Premier, you know what he said to me after that? He said, you know what a bronze medal means, Roy? It means the loser beat you. Exactly. I don't want to take anything from any from anyone who's won bronze or silver medals. Great achievement. I'm just talking about the competitive attitude that some people bring with them. Yes. And to win, you need that. Yes. So, uh, I, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I find that in in Canadian sports generally now, and you take hockey as an example. I always get frustrated when I'm listening 
to a sports station and I hear, like in my case, is Vancouver Canucks, and I hear um, the coach and some of the players on there talking about the upcoming season and their desire to get in the playoffs. Well, if your desire is only to get in the playoffs, the likelihood is that you won't. If your desire is to win the Stanley Cup and your aim is to win the Stanley Cup, you might have a much better chance of making the playoffs. So this business of of limiting one's uh, goal, uh, you know, totally takes away from your ability to win. Yep. And I hope Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors will have really taught a a very, very strong and useful lesson to the six Canadian-based NHL teams. Win. Just win. So you were using, you used the word, we only have about two and a half minutes, so I want to get to this. You used the word underwhelm in one of your blog posts. Share with us, please. Yes, exactly. And that was when I saw the, the Nanos poll, which shows the, the Liberals ahead of the Conservatives and Mr. Trudeau ahead of Mr. Scheer, that what came to mind, as a matter of fact, it was early in the morning, I was getting up and, and uh, I had heard it on the radio or whatever, and uh, as, I was, uh, as I was getting a shave or whatever, it, it struck me, you know, what, the, the right word to describe what's going on with the opposition parties in Canada is that they underwhelm. In other words, they are not living up uh, to any of the expectations most voters would have for an opposition party which has this golden opportunity with all the blunders of the liberals to make it into government. And so, to me, it's an underwhelming performance, which, and I say at the end of my blog, that I am hopeful that by people like myself, who have been a conservative all my life, uh, that uh, this would somehow stimulate the leadership of the uh, of the parties and in this case the conservative party to start to reform their approach to the election so that they have a better opportunity of winning you must not underwhelm you must get out there and fight like a dog on policy and on leadership uh, to turn this country around you have an innate sense after all your years in politics and your competitions that you fought, because it is a competition, an election campaign is a competition. Sure it is. What, is your, what does your gut tell you about these, about these leaders? Well, it seems to me, I don't know what happens if there's somebody talked about the, the Minister of Environment of the great water there is in Ottawa, so I don't know if it's in the water. I guess it can't be it's so clean, it's so wonderful in the Ottawa water, according to the Minister of Environment. But um, there must be something in the atmosphere of Ottawa so that so many politicians who get elected or people who get elected to become politicians go there, and they're not there three months before listening to them. You're, you hear the jargon, you hear uh, uh, the ambiguous uh, approach to things, right. and their whole idea of turning the country around and making the country yeah. get better seems to be diminished. Premier, I got to run. I thank you so much, as always. I'll probably annoy you again sometime during the week. Just don't, <laughs> an- just don't answer. Just don't answer. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Uh, Premier Brian Peckford. Reading a story in the National Post by John Iveson, Canada shirking its responsibility to prosecute its citizens who fought for ISIL or ISIS. Well, it seems to be a little too difficult to get the ISIS members who came from Canada out of Kurdish detention centers or prisons 
even though the Kurds want us to get them out of there and take them back to Canada and deal with them, it's a little too difficult to find them, uh, from what I gather. But it wasn't too difficult for Global News' Stuart Bell to find and interview an ISIS member in Kurdish custody. And he confessed to Stuart Bell or told him that, you know, yeah, sure, they'd taken human heads and played soccer with them. But we're not going to bring them back, so certainly not before October the 21st. And, of course, our prime minister has said that uh, these former or, or still currently or ISIS members would come back to Canada. They could do, you know, very useful, good things in this country. That's the view of Mr. Trudeau. Scott Newark, National Security Advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, post 9-11, rather, former Alberta prosecutor who argues prosecution may be difficult, but certainly is not impossible. And Scott wrote a major piece for the McDonald Laurier Institute, and I've got it here. Good to have you back with us. Good to be back. Where, where have you been? At my desk. Well, you mean I haven't called you? I think that's it. Although I would, I did play golf one weekend very badly. That's the weekend I called you. Could be. Yeah, I talked to your be. wife. I was busy duffing the ball. Yeah, well, you shouldn't do that. I no kidding. By now, <laughs> by now, <laughs> you should be aware. I know my it's, son beat me. The, the, by now, you should be aware that it's never going to get better. It doesn't matter what club you buy, what ball you use, how many times you cheat. It's never going to get better. I don't agree. I don't, I don't agree. agree. I don't agree. It's always going to get better. It's always going to get better. Okay. Okay. So, look, is Canada shirking its responsibilities to prosecute its citizens who fought for ISIS? Let's start with that. Um, that's really the theme of uh, John Iveson's uh, column. And he's a, I find him to be a very pragmatic guy. And he made the same point that you did. Uh, he referenced the article that I had uh, written. But it was, you know, if the media are able to go and... Uh, cooperate with the authorities and interview these people, what's with the government of Canada saying, oh, no, we can't do this? I mean, that, that's on its face, it seems hypocritical. Um, and a couple of points. I think part of the reason why the article, uh, John did the article that he did was the United Nations uh, uh, head of uh, human rights actually just this week made the same point, calling on countries to take back their citizens that have been detained. But for me, from the get-go about this, the real point was um, that just simply, you know, looking the other way and being risk-averse and not doing anything is not in our own best interests. And yes, it's going to be complicated, and we need to develop a strategy, and it's going to have to be handled on a case-by-case basis. But we do have multiple applicable existing tools, and as I say, using them and working with the uh, the Kurds uh, is the reason that I suggest it's appropriate to do is because it's in our best interest. Okay, explain this to me. I, I don't un- I don't understand how it's complicated. These well, I, let me explain. Let me just uh, yeah. humor me. Uh, so you have these individuals who Canadian citizens who left the country when joined ISIS, God knows what they did. Uh, and now they're being held by the Kurds. The Kurds don't want them. They they can't hold them. There's too many of them and they they've got other things to do with their you know, with their shrinking resources. So they want 
Canada and other countries to take their citizens back. One of Canada's arguments is, well, we can't we can't get them back into Canada because they'll be stopped in Turkey. Well, the Turkish government has said, That's no, we nonsense. won't stop them. We won't stop. You can have them. We're not going to get in the way. So there goes that argument. I don't understand how it's complicated at all. We have laws. We can charge them under existing laws. One of the most fundamental laws is if you leave Canada to join a terror group, you've broken criminal law. Uh, so why can we not just get them? We know where they are. If, if Stuart Bell can find them, so can the RCMP, I think, I hope. Yeah. Uh, so, so just go get them, bring them back, try them, throw them in jail for the rest of their rotten lives. Yeah, except that uh, a couple of points to keep in mind. Number one, they're not all members of ISIS who were fighting with ISIS. You're, the largest number of them appear to be children, okay, who were either taken over there or who were born there from their Canadian parents. Yeah, you know I'm not talking they about have kids. They presumptive Canadian citizenship. You know I'm not okay? talking about kids. They're not going to get processed. No, but you're going to have to deal with that. because and, and part of why I say that this is uh, in our best interest to do something, because if we just look the other way, don't you think we're likely contributing to another generation of jihadi? I'd say so. Not a good idea. The next largest group are of the, the wives, and some were women who went over because they simply wanted to live in an Islamic society. Um, others, uh, we don't quite know what their role was with ISIS and whether it would constitute something that we could prosecute them for here. I'll tell you, my biggest concern, and I've seen, I watched in detail two of the interviews, my biggest concern is also making sure that if these people are brought back here, that uh, uh, we make sure that we protect their kids so they're not being raised by Islamists, okay? But you can't make any progress towards that unless you do the first steps and start asking the questions. And the final group are the, the uh, males, uh, although there is one Canadian who is detained by the Iraqis, uh, to my knowledge, that was actually found uh, uh, arrested uh, carrying explosives and uh, weapons. So you want to look at what the actual behaviors of the individuals are to see whether or not they can be prosecuted. And just to make it more difficult, we don't, obviously, we don't specifically know exactly who did what. And the, there's a difference between information and admissible evidence. So we've got to get a process in place by which we are able to get that evidence, if it exists, so that we can use it. And I think, and I, I say this based on you know, a career of experience in dealing with um, you know, targeted offenders, high-risk kinds of offenders, uh, with gang members and things. When you get the circumstance that you have some potential leverage over those individuals, that's when you need to be proactive and use it. And what bothers me the most, and from when I started writing about this, even before Stuart and his team went over there, is that it appears as though uh, the people that theoretically are in charge of this, the RCMP, have a very, very risk-averse and reactive rather than proactive approach. And I think that's contrary to uh, our public interest, and that's beginning to get raised uh, more and more as uh, countries around the world are beginning to realize that they, they, they need to step up and do something. Scott, we have individuals who joined ISIS and have come back. We have one guy in Toronto Yes. who was working with New York Times bloggers, know, yeah. right? And he was bragging and boasting about what he'd done, and he said, oh, the police are not going to bother me here. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. This is back in Canada. Nobody's charged him. He's not, being, uh, he's not facing any time in jail because we have this wimpy uh, federal government or we have a government that has some strange 
um, attitudes toward terrorists. Remember, Trudeau in 2015, prior to the election, said, screamed that uh, that uh, uh, convicted terrorists were not going to be losing their can- Canadian citizenship if they were dual citizens, and, and he passed legislation to that Correct. effect. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so we have we have at least one, and probably more who are back here now, and nobody's done anything with them. And if you talk to, uh, to, to Ralph Goodale, the public safety minister, he gets so nervous, yeah. right? He just, he just stammers, and he, doesn't, he, he knows what the right answer is. He just can't bring himself to say it. Yeah. Part, part of the difficulty about this is, though, Roy, is that we just because something is in the media doesn't mean it's 100 percent accurate or that it's all of the information. And appropriately, we don't know exactly, you know, what kind of um, uh, surveillance some of these people may be under. Yeah. What we can tell, however, is whether or not the legal tools are being used. And in that, I completely agree with you. And over the past I don't know, 18 months, I've been extremely disappointed in Minister Goodell, who just seems, as you say, to be, you know, sputtering these talking points. Yeah, best before date. It's the best before date. about things and saying, you know, we need to use all the tools in the toolbox. Yeah, it's the best before date with him. It's long expired. Have a listen to this. Yes, yes. Uh, C-24, it's the bill that, for me, exemplifies the conservatives' approach to politics. Because what they get to say with the Liberal Party's staunch opposition to C24, because we absolutely and thoroughly impose it, is that, and I'll give you the quote, so you guys can jot it down and put it in a attack ad somewhere, that the, the Liberal Party believes that terrorists should get to keep their Canadian citizenship. Because I do. And I'm willing to take on anyone who disagrees with that. Yeah, well, I've been asking him if he'd come on in on the show because he wants to take on anybody who disagrees with him. Well, come on in, Prime Minister. I disagree with you. This is the guy who wants to be Prime Minister for another four years. Give me a break. It, the bill itself originally drafted had some flaws in it. But yeah, well, it did. You're right about the principle. Yeah, C6 got a lot of flaws in it, too. That's the one that replaced it. John Letts is the father of Jihadi Jack Letts, British citizen, Canadian citizen, who left the UK and uh, was with ISIS. And uh, John Letts and his wife sent money to their kid because they were scared for him. But they've just been convicted in Britain of supporting a terrorist group by sending money. They got a, essentially got a slap on the wrist by the courts. But the issue here is what happens with Jack, their kid? You just heard John Letts say, federal government of Canada been in touch with them about bringing Jack into this country. And Scott, what do we do about that? You know the story better than anybody. You've heard Jack Letts, uh, yeah. John, John Letts. So, so what do we do? What's going to happen with this guy? Well, the British should step up and take their citizen back. Well, they're not going to. He is technically a Canadian citizen because of uh, uh, his father's Canadian citizenship. That is true. Uh, we have no constitutional obligation. Uh, although a citizen has a constitutionally protected right to enter the country, they, they, there is not well, a... Well, let's, let's ask Justin Trudeau about that. Well, there's not a concurrent obligation, though, for the government to take steps to bring them back here. 
Okay, so this is back and forth between uh, Great Britain and uh, Canada. And, the, you know, the kid grew up there. Uh, he had lived there. That's where he left the country from. Uh, supposedly, to go, he had converted to Islam. He's got mental health issues. This is something the British should do. They are also a country like Canada that is not taking the necessary steps to bring their citizens back. And this case has a twist to it simply because this guy has the, the uh, dual status. So what's going to happen in this case? We know that Ottawa has talked to the Letts family about allowing their son, Jihadi Jack Letts, into Canada. We know those conversations have taken place because John Letts told us that. So no, what's I going to happen? It's probably, um, uh, you know, behind this is going to be the behind closed doors uh, negotiations. If Canada actually does step up and start to put in place a strategy to deal with this, the British may, you know, just try to do nothing and have us include let's in it. Uh, they should be, in my opinion, they should clearly be doing this themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think. You know, the numbers are not very big. You're probably talking about 30 people in total, which includes all of the the wives and the uh, the children of these guys. There's maybe, last I looked, there was maybe actual uh, four, uh, maybe five uh, people that might have been engaged in uh, jihadi. Well, hold on. But didn't, didn't they say that there were 60 or 70 they were worried about? No, these are just the ones that are being held by the Kurds. Oh, okay. I got you. Okay. Yeah, you're right that you. there, is, there is more, and we've never really gotten a straight answer about that. But you know, Roy, it's ironic. This weekend, the Kurds hosted an event for foreign governments to come and attend to discuss how to bring it back. And guess which two countries didn't show up? Uh, let me see. The U.K. and Canada. Correct. Okay. That's, okay. that's not going to solve and yet, these problems. And yet the U.K. sent the SAS over there, their absolute elite special forces unit, with the explicit instructions to kill all British ISIS members. And the head of the SAS regiment said, this is the most important mission in the 75-year history of this regiment. Well, I mean, uh, I'll be blunt. Uh, if you're in a uh, you know battle uh, situation uh, and uh, you're engaged in it, there's no question that uh, you know that is obviously something that's effective. But that's no longer the situation. It's no longer People the situation. People are now detained. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. being held by authorities. We have legal mechanisms available to us, yeah. and we're just not using them. And the and the Kurds are saying, "Hey, we got them. They're right here. Look, look. We we, we have your guys here." We, we have them. Come and get them. Yes. And, and somehow, even though Stuart Bell was able to get over there and, and do interviews and with, with these Canadian ISIS members, the RCMP just can't quite put the itinerary yeah, together. Part of what concerns me is that the Kurds might just simply go, you know what, as you said that at the intro, uh, we've got our own issues here. We're just letting these people go. Yep. Okay, and the ISIS has made it clear that they intend to get their people to hide them amongst, you know, the mass migration and get them into uh, the European uh, Union or get them into uh, United States uh, or Canada. United States or, or Canada. They've made it clear that they intend to do it. So when we actually have the control and influence is when we need to act, not just look the other way. Scott Newark's commentary in uh, the McDonald laurier Institute's publication is titled, It's Time for an Effective Strategy to Deal with Canadian Jihadis Detained Abroad. Always good talking to you, my friend. Give up the golf. Give it up. Oh, I'm, stay- I'm give staying it, give, with it. Give it, give it up. <laughs> Bye-bye. Give it up. <laughs> Scott Newark. Been doing some 
programming recently, if you've been listening a lot, you know we've been talking about anti-Semitism, which is rearing its very ugly head increasingly and globally. And this has to stop. And the only way it's going to stop is if we, all of us, put a stop to it. And I think some of the constant references to Nazism uh, has given people a sense that they have the license to do whatever the hell they want. And you don't have that license. Or you should at least have the brakes in your own system to stop. Antisemitism is ugly. And uh, recent history tells us what the tragic realities have brought. So I had a, an opportunity to, well, I read a story the other day about Richard Zimler. Mr. Zimler is an international best-selling novelist whose books have been translated, as I've been telling you, into 20 languages. And recently, Richard Zimler had a very, I was going to say unfortunate, it isn't unfortunate, it's an ignorant experience, ignorant experience by anti-Semites in, uh, in England. And uh, Richard Zimler joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. His new book, by the way, is The Gospel According to Lazarus. Richard, thank you very much for, for taking the time. Good to talk to you. An honor to talk to you. I, I have so much respect for people who can write a book and finish it. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on your program, and thank you for discussing this important topic. Well, let's, uh, before we get into some of the statistical stuff that I have, and I don't like statistics, but I think in this case it's going to matter. Mm -hmm. uh, have you, before your incident in England, which we'll talk about in a moment, have you had a sense that there is growing anti-Semitism in the world, and have you had a sense that some of it may have been directed toward you? Well, sure. Like most people, I've read the statistics, and I, I live in Portugal, where I'm mostly free from this, thank goodness. But I do travel to the States and to Britain and to other countries. And so I'm aware of, uh, you know, desecration of synagogues and, in France, the attacks on uh, French people and French-Jewish French restaurants. And uh, it's impossible to be a Jew, I think, without being aware of this. And, of course, uh, I've experienced anti-Semitism in, in my own life. Um, Nothing as bad as what re happened to me recently in the U.K. in Great Britain. But, you know, people say mean things about Jews, you know, uh, that we're cheap and we're aggressive and uh, we run the world and we pull the strings of every, every government in the world. And you hear all the stereotypes, you hear all the negatives. And um, I'm a non-confrontational person and I don't believe I'm going to educate too many anti-Semites. So my usual attitude is uh, just to walk away and never speak to them again. Yeah, uh, that's step number one, isn't it? Just yeah. don't give them an audience. When your friend, let's get to the England story, when your yeah. friend and part-time book publicist first told you by phone that you being Jewish caused organizations um, which had expressed an interest in having you address them when your new book was coming out, right? Uh, the, when they found out that you were Jewish, they backed away and they stopped all communication with your representative in England. And you wrote in your Guardian piece about this that you were, quote, deeply shocked and upset, end quote. And I gather, and you say this, this is particularly galling to you because it happened in England. 
Well, I, first I was shocked. My publicist called me up, and he was extremely distressed. I'd never heard his voice like that. Um, and the first thing he said, curiously enough, was, you can't tell this to anyone. You can't go public with this. So I knew something bad had happened. And then he told me that um, these organizations uh, basically cut off all contact the moment they asked if they found out I was Jewish. I mean, I thought it was outrageous that they would even ask for my religious affiliation, since talking about my novel had nothing to do with that whatsoever. Um, and yeah, so I was upset and I, I was numb. And uh, since he had said, don't go public with this, I, my first reaction was just, you know, I'll just keep this to myself, keep quiet and just swallow my outrage because there's not much I can do. I just want to read from your op-ed piece in The Guardian. In early March, he, this would be your representative, called and confessed in a distressed tone I'd never heard before that he'd just been turned down by two cultural organizations that had previously shown enthusiasm for hosting an event with me. Quote, they asked me if you were Jewish, and the moment I said you were, they lost all interest, end quote. And then, in quotes again, they even stopped replying to my emails and returning my phone messages, end quote. In the next paragraph, you have him saying to you that the or organizers or the coordinators had convinced your friend they weren't anti-Semitic, right. but, quote, they feared a backlash, protests by their members and others if they extended an invitation to a Jewish writer. So we're at the stage where you're taking a step to eliminate a Jewish author, you, from yeah. participating in a speaking engagement to their organizations, not because yeah. the or organizers don't want you, they're afraid of a public backlash. Well, you know, to me, that's that's the bigger message here. Um, you know, being turned down for events in England isn't going to cost me my career. I can keep writing novels. I can keep making right. a living. So it's really not important for me. But it's important for society to deal with this issue of a climate of fear. I, I called it a chilling effect in my Guardian piece because that's the legal term we use in the States for when uh, a government or when a private organization makes, uh, makes, makes things so fearful that you you no longer feel comfortable exercising your own rights or doing or leading your life the way you need to do, and I think that's what's happened in the UK. I mean, I think Brexit in part is responsible for creating a very polarized society. Uh, my friends in the UK and blame in part the BDS movement, the boycott, uh, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, and because as you know, um, all over the world, people have a hard time distinguishing between a Jew like me and an Israeli. I'm not Israeli. I have nothing to do with Israel, no investments there, no close family. I'm Jewish. Um, but a lot of people, particularly people who tend to have uh, anti-Jewish feelings, uh, refuse to see the difference between, between a Jew and an Israeli, and they think everything goes when it comes to protesting Israel. You know, the ignorance factor, let's call it that, the ignorance factor isn't by accident. And I was really Again, I was shocked by numbers that I saw recently, just the last few weeks. In this country, in Canada, 53% yeah. uh, of people in Quebec, adults in Quebec, have no idea, or really not much idea, what the Holocaust is about because they were never taught anything about the Holocaust in school. Reverse those numbers to 35% yeah. and you have the rest of the country. Yeah. That's, that is deeply concerning. When you talk about six million people being systematically murdered 
and there's nothing said about it. There's no educational aspect right. in the uh, in, in the schools in more than 50% of the cases in Quebec and almost 40% in the rest of Canada. That is deeply concerning, and that is going to eventually lead to fallout. Yeah, um, obviously our educational system is failing when it comes to topics like the Holocaust and probably with other crimes against humanity like the gulags in the Soviet Union. Um, we got to wonder what our teachers are, ter- uh, are, are telling the students about these horrible efforts, these horrible crimes against humanity. Uh, a statistic I read about the UK is that one in 20 Brits uh, are ho- is a Holocaust denier. So if you extrapolate that out to the population, that's 2.6 million Brits. Don't believe there were death camps. Don't believe that 6 million Jews and 500,000 gypsies perished. Uh, Don't believe there were ghettos. I don't know what they think about World War II. Maybe they think World War II was just uh, false news or something. But um, it's deeply disturbing to me that you can have that many millions of people in an educated country like Britain who refuse to acknowledge historical truths. I mean, it's such a lack of respect for not just for Jews, of course, and for the millions who perished, but for everyone who perished in, in World War II. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, 50 million people total in yeah. World War II. What's the response been from England, from average people, to your Guardian piece? Well, I've got a lot of support from old friends, curiously enough, whom I hadn't heard from in 5, 10, 15 years. Um, Many of them are foreigners living in the U.K., and they wrote to thank me because they've had similar experiences. You know, this isn't just a Jewish issue, although that's very important. Uh, in the UK, there's a, there's a strong anti-immigrant feeling. So I heard from a Chilean friend who's having problems re-entering the job market after having her young children. And she says uh, people for the first time in the UK are, are, are asking her why she has a foreign accent, where she's from, uh, is she fluent in English? And she's married to a Brit, has two British kids, and she says it's never been like this. A Portuguese teacher wrote me to say that two British parents pulled their kids out of her class because she speaks English with an accent, and they told her to go back to Portugal. So I've got a lot. I mean, it's, it's kind of horrifying, but I've gotten all these stories from old friends telling me what's happening to them, to them and it's led me to believe that this is, this is bigger than anti-Semitism. It's anti-immigrant. It's, it's xenophobia. Um, You know, in the States, I'm American. I was born there, although I've lived in Portugal for 30 years. And I know that, uh, you know, Trump's election has brought out the worst in some Americans in terms of anti-immigrant feeling and and xenophobia. So it's not a surprise to me that this is happening all over the world. And I, I think your program is great. We need to all fight this. We all need to commit ourselves to remembering the Holocaust, to remembering all the crimes against humanity, and to fighting this every day of our lives. Well, I, I tell you, I'm, uh, what happened to you just absolutely shocked me. And, and it was the fact that you were shut down. The invitation was, in a cowardly way, rescinded. Didn't face you and say, we've changed our minds, Mr. Zimler. They didn't yeah. do anything. They just, you know, they just tucked their heads in and rolled away into a dark corner. Um, well, Roy, isn't, it, isn't it always like that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I've experienced, we've all experienced, you know, discrimination at one point in our lives. And it's always the case that, that when we, we, we call people out on it, we say, you know what, I don't like that. They say, oh, you misunderstood me. That's not what I meant. Oh, I was referring to other people. You know, no one 
I mean, almost no one has the perverse courage to admit that they discriminate and that they're prejudiced. It's all, and that's why, you know, some people have written negative things about me saying, I, I should fire my publicist. I should name him. I really? Should, you should fire I should him. shame these people. And, and I say, you know, it would do no good, in my opinion, Why because should? It, it would be his word against theirs, and they're just going to deny it. Why should you fire your publicist? Oh, I don't because understand they say that. He's a, ca- he's a coward for not wanting to, to, to give out his name. But, you know, the publishing industry is very small in the U.K. I mean, you know, there's 60 editors at 20 publishing houses and another 100, you know, people working in the industry. And if I were to name him and name the organizations, he'd never work in the industry again. And I, I have a moral responsibility to him not to do that. Uh, before we get into anything else, tell us, please, about your new book, The Gospel According to Lazarus. Let's, what, what's it about? Well, it starts off with the Lazarus, whom we all know from the Gospel according to John, uh, awakening in his rock-cut tomb in Jerusalem. He's been dead, although uh, he doesn't know that, of course. And um, so he awakens, and he's in his tomb, and he sees these people there, and he doesn't know who they are. He's very fragile, very disoriented. And his sisters tell him that he was ill and that he died. And he doesn't believe them. Who would believe that, of course? And slowly he begins to regain his identity and his strength. And within the fictional context of my book, his best friend from childhood happens to be Jesus Christ, who revived him. Um, And so it tells the story of Lazarus from his own point of view. And one of my goals was to give back to him and to Jesus their Judaism. So Jesus is uh, is Yeshua ben Yosef, Yeshua son of Yosef, and Lazarus is Eliza ben Natan, Eliza's son of Natan. And I wanted to create a Jesus that wasn't a Christian version, that was a Jewish version, that it was a Jewish preacher and mystic and healer. And I wanted to reclaim, not, not to spurn the Christian view, but reclaim Jesus as an important Jewish figure. Because I think... Jews, Jewish philosophers and theologians have distanced themselves from Jesus for reasons that have nothing to do with his message, but have all to do with what his followers made of his message. So I I wanted to try to get back to ancient Jewish practice and mysticism. So when you write a book, I want to go back to saying what I said earlier, and I admire anybody who can start. We've all started books. I I have about 10 of them that are underway. They're they're about halfway through page one, (laughs) each and every one of them. I haven't got to the bottom of page one yet, but I know it's going to get good. Um, When you you have an idea, and I'll ask you to give me this thought really quickly, then I'll have time for one more uh, question on the other issue of anti-Semitism. When you get the idea for a book, do you just plow ahead or is there some some part of you that says, I also have to make a living, so I have to be careful about what I'm writing about this or Um, that? Unfortunately, I have no strategy for my career, so I pretty much plow ahead. You know, when it's a historical novel like this one that takes place 2,000 years ago, I do about six months of initial research because I need to know the day-to-day life of Jews and Greeks and Romans living in the Holy Land. What clothes did they wear? What did they eat? How were the streets, the houses? And you know what? It's that research that gives me my confidence because once I can see myself on a little street in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and I see the merchandise being sold in the stalls and I hear the sounds of people selling wine, then I know I can write the book. That's fascinating. 
I always wondered whether pragmatism intrudes uh, into the into the creative sphere. Uh, six months, man, that's a that's a commitment. But uh, I love it. I, yeah. No sacrifice. I love history. I love reading and finding out all sorts of strange and curious details about well, the past. Well, I'm going to read the book for sure. Thank uh, you, Richard. Final question: Do you have hope that things will get better, or do you see us continuing down that other path? You know, I think you hit on the key uh, element in this, which is education. I think in the schools, in the schools of Quebec, English-speaking Canada, America, Britain, everywhere, we need to be teaching not just about the Holocaust, but about all sorts of crimes against humanity, what happened to the Native Americans and then the indigenous people in Canada, uh, the wonderful immigrant stories of people with great courage coming over to Montreal and to Toronto and to Vancouver. We have to be teaching, 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 teaching so it never happens again. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks a lot. Richard Zimler. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.